and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Saurav Vishnavakt, Associate Professor of Law at the Texas A&M University. My guest today is Sarah wasserman Riots, Associate Professor of Law at the College of William & Mary. We'll be discussing her new article, The Property Law Misfit in Patent Law. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. Great. So let's, uh, let's begin at the beginning with the problem of uh, analogy that's really at the heart of the paper. Um, so in your view, uh, is patent law best understood as a subfield of property law that has simply diverged from other subfields like real property and our mistake is to hold too tightly to outmoded connections? Or is patent law better understood as a distinct field and any connections that it may have uh, to the, the the domains of property law may or may not uh, be best evaluated on their own terms? So I think it it fairly clearly is part of the property law world. Um, I, I think uh, there's sort of a, a long and rich scholarly conversation about whether intellectual property is property, and if so, sort of in what ways and what does that mean? Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of continuing that conversation. Um, I think there's, there's sort of a strong version of the IP as private property um, argument, and that uh, that likens patent law, for example, to personal property or to real property and land. Um, and, and so that's sort of one side of it. And as it's been used in patent law, that argument has often been used to advocate for really strong patent rights. Um, and I think that the other part of the argument or the other side of the argument is that it's one form of property and, and the forms include sort of private property, sure, but also monopolies, public franchises, water rights, and other regulatory grants. Um, and to the extent that patents are like that, there's room to imagine different contours. Um, and, and we sort of, we have the things we want to do with it so we can figure out how to do those. And in that way, sometimes the fact that patents are like property doesn't really answer the most difficult questions for us. Yeah, so uh, let me touch on for a moment the, the point you raised about uh, justifying strong property rights, because that, uh, I think, is one of the most important uh, normative lessons of your of your paper. So we can imagine strong property rights, or excuse me, strong patent rights, um, deriving from this property-centric view as taking on several dimensions. It could be that strong prop, strong patent rights mean uh, patents of very broad scope, or it could mean uh, remedies that are quite uh, robust and, and even aggressive at times. And then uh, the questions of you know validity, what kinds of administrative or institutional uh, protections should patents qua property enjoy? So when you say, uh, when you sort of conceive of strong patent rights in this normative way, are you thinking of one or more of those, of all of those uh, dimensions? What are, you, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So in, in the paper, I sort of trace three different areas where um, these strong uh, patents as property rights type arguments have been made and shot down by the court. And, and it isn't always shot down, but in these cases, it was. And so I wanted to look a bit at, you know, what can we take? When When is the court most likely to sort of ignore that argument, you know, and, and we can argue about how much it actually hews to what what property rights are, and, and you know, property theory is advanced in its own way. But I'm, I'm kind of talking about property rights as they're argued in patent law, um, and I, I really think we started to see this um, with 
the 2006 case of eBay versus Merck Exchange. Um, and so in that case, the Supreme Court looked at uh, permanent injunctions following a finding of patent infringement and said that uh, it wasn't, there was, there was no patent exceptionalism. You know, you still had to measure, weigh these four factors um, to, to decide if an injunction was uh, appropriate in patent law. But the actual effect of the case was to, to give cover um, to the denial of injunctions in certain instances. And the Kennedy concurrence in that case, Justice Kennedy's concurrence, um, has really sort of held the day, um, won the day in, in terms of when it is that injunctions will be denied. And he talked about certain situations in which injunctions might not be appropriate um, because they differ from historical um, and typical cases of patent infringement. He talked about cases where you have overbroad um, patents of, of dubious validity. Um, he talked about having overlapping patents, many overlapping patents on one good so that there's a potential for holdup. Um, and I think he, he, he sort of raised these concerns that then as, as we get into talking about this misfit, um, uh, that we'll talk about, uh, I, I think that they really play into the misfit, they arise when that misfit is the strongest. So I think eBay was the first one there where, uh, where a lot of sort of property patents as property rights proponents said, look, a, a patent is a right to exclude. And so the only remedy that is appropriate or, you know, almost always appropriate when there is an infringement is an injunction against further intrusion. Um, and so, I mean, you can, you can justify eBay in terms of property too. And, and, and I think for all of these, there, you know, there are ways that you can use property law to, to read in limitations. Um, but I think, I think there the court was willing to, to sort of look at what's actually happening with patent infringement cases and the cases that were being brought, many of them by, uh, patent assertion entities, um, non-practicing entities, trolls, whatever, whatever right. the nomenclature is, um, and, and look at what's really happening and how, how it might not be furthering patent law purposes rather than looking at sort of property law itself. Um, and then, and then, uh, yeah, so the, so moving on, there's, there's exhaustion and, and the Supreme Court's taken up exhaustion sort of a number of times, uh, uh, since 2008 when they decided, um, LG Electronics versus Quanta. Um, and then, and then in 2013, there was Bowman versus Monsanto and, and in 2017, Impression Products versus Lexmark. Um, and all of those cases, you know, are sort of very, property related because they're about people who have bought goods that are subject to patents and what they can do with them once they've bought them. Um, what are the, what are legitimate restraints on alienation of those goods and, and what are not? Um, and so there, as I, as I think about the, the sort of misfit of patent law to, to our traditional property law, I, I see very strongly the interests of third parties in their own property, like actual property. Um, and so I, I think that that's sort of a rich one to look at. The most recent one, and, and you mentioned this, is, is administrative um, review of, of granted patents, the 2018 case of oil states, um, energy services versus greens energy group. And there, um, there the, the court is looking at uh, administrative post-grant review of rights that have been granted. And I think there we found sort of the most strident language, I might say, by, by property rights proponents. Um, the, 
the uh, the quote from uh, from uh, former Chief Judge Rader uh, that that uh, these these uh, reviews are like patent death squads or property rights death squads um, that that you know make it seem like uh, reviewing a granted patent by an administrative agency is is somehow killing property rights. And again, the Supreme Court, you know, wasn't swayed by that. Um, and and the similar language those those uh those used in a lot of the amicus briefs um that argued against post-grant review um and and was looking was looking to other things. And so I kind of wanted to look at all of these cases and say, is there something about patents um that's different in a way that we can predict um or explain uh, when it is that the court's likely to do something different, um, and when it is that we might want the court to to do something different and look a little bit deeper. Right. So the the uh, examples you identify, right, of remedies and exhaustion and, and post grant review, it seems like the thread that ties them together is really the, um, the sort of purposes to which we want patent law uh, to be oriented. And uh, I take from your article that you know the the greater the misfit, the greater the um, the potential for divergence from those values uh, in those situations is where the courts, uh, particularly the Supreme Court, will be most likely to to say, okay, patent law uh, is is at the end of the day its own thing, and property can only take us so far. So we should allow the the, the distinct, uh, you know, sort of normative purposes of patent law to prevail. Is is that fair? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's that's yeah, the thread through all of those. So then let's let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, what those purposes of patent law are, right? There's there's uh, there are sort of two main strands in the literature. One is much more historically focused and has to do with personhood and moral rights and natural rights. But uh, the, the modern conception uh, of patents is primarily instrumental. It's much more focused on uh, innovation. So uh, it for your purposes, what is it about the um, innovation focused purposes of patent law that these misfits really uh, sort of arise in. Yeah, so I, I think uh, I think that's right. The the I, I look at the innovation um, you know, innovation side of it. And I think that the the property um, law, the sort of real property or personal property analogies uh, can feel helpful in explaining why we would want to have patents and why we'd want to protect them. Um, we want people to invest and we want them to invest efficiently. And so just like we think people will put their land to the best use if they're allowed to sort of reap whatever rewards come from it, um, I think we we sort of uh, feel that people are best able to value their own ideas and they can decide how much to invest in them um, and, and will make relatively efficient decisions um, about how much to invest in them and, and sort of get them out uh, if the way they get rewarded is by um, is by doing that, by investing in it and bringing it to market or licensing it or, or what have you. Um, so I think, I mean, to start with, the property analogy is, is useful and, and helpful. And I think there's other things about patent rights that are, that are sort of property like. Um, so, I mean, the, the main one, of course, is that they are exclusive rights. That's how they're defined in the constitution. And that's the only thing, that's the only stick in that bundle, um, of rights is that it's the right to exclude others from making, using, selling, offering to sell or importing the goods into the United States. Um, and, 
And so, uh, you know, Thomas Merrill has said that exclusion is the sine qua non of property. And so here we have just an exclusive right. And so it, it sort of follows that patents ought to be looked at as property. Um, but at the same time, there are, there are ways that, that, uh, patents really do differ from property law. And so some of these are, are things that have been written about. And, and like I said, this is sort of, this is a rich literature that I, that I decided to engage with and sort of, uh, closed my eyes and jumped in because a, a lot of sort of giants have, have written in this field. But, uh, but so there's, there's a number of critiques of the property law framework. Um, and among them are that, uh, there's, there's notice failure, um, in, uh, in patent law and, uh, and boundary ambiguity, right? So, uh, so the fact that in, in property law, for example, um, the, the, if I walk down the street and there is a car sitting there, if I know it's not mine, I can be pretty sure that it's somebody else's and that I can't use it. Um, and so the, the car itself gives me notice. That thing itself gives me notice, um, that I can't use it. Um, but then in, uh, in patent law, um, we have all sorts of things that have entered the public domain and we want them to be in the public domain. We have a term limit on patent rights because we want those ideas to be free to everyone 20 years after um, the patent's been filed. And we don't allow patents on obvious um, improvements over the prior art because we think that that just belongs in the public domain. So unlike uh, unlike private property law and um, and, you know, uh, and real property law, we don't sort of expect everything to be owned. And I'm setting aside, you know, public land and things like that, because that's, first of all, a fairly small minority of things. And we, we set up demarcations for that. And people know about parks and things like that. But normally, if you come across a piece of land that doesn't say it's a park, you know, you probably shouldn't enter it if it if it doesn't appear to be public land. Um, but with patents, there, there, there isn't notice like that. I mean, if I come up with my very own idea, if I independently invent something and then I build it out of my own materials that I own, I could still be infringing somebody other, somebody else's patent rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that, that's a real difference, um, between, between other kind of property law. And so I wanted to explore in particular this, this sort of idea of possession, this, this, uh, idea that patent rights might be in REM, that is their rights in a thing, and they exclude everyone else from that thing. But the the actual right is in the idea. And then the remedy is is about stopping someone else from using their own property in a way that they would like to use it, um, which is really different from how we conceive of private property law. Okay, so if the if the sort of idea of uh, of you know an idea being the subject matter, the race of the uh, of the in rem right is what's coming into conflict with other people's uses of their own uh, chattels or land or or the subject of their property. Then, if the I mean that sounds like property law's internal conflict for which we have doctrines of, of resolution, but. It sounds like the bigger misfit here is that the the problems that patent law raises are different in kind because the purposes of patent law are at one side and the conflict that creates 
with other people's ability to use their own things, um, that's governed by a domain of property law that has sort of different uh, values in mind. And so is that the bigger misfit that uh, that you're trying to, to resolve here? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I'm looking I'm I'm sort of they they all kind of play together, right? This notice failure boundary ambiguity um and importance of the public domain, those have those have been spoken about about, but I think they really come out when you see that we're talking about the the separation between what it is this intangible information that the patent um holder has come up with and and staked their claim on and what it is that third parties want to do um, with with goods that are in their dominion um, and exercising their own property interests um, towards. Okay, so this ultimately, I think, boils down to then a problem of information cost. And you you talk a, a good bit in the paper about information cost. Are there particular kinds of uh, like search costs or um, you know, in, in uh, for example, uh, title deeds in, in land, we have very well-defined registries and we can know the chain of title with some, you know, confidence, some high degree of confidence. Whereas on the other side, search costs in, in patent law, or even though there is a registry of patents, we may not know who owns them or what they cover. Um, what are some of the information costs that you think are most likely to lead to the kinds of misfits uh, that, that will do damage? Yeah, so I think, uh, so Clarissa Long has written about uh, the information costs uh, in intellectual property law generally. And one of the things that she talks about is that uh, even if what you discover is that you're free to go ahead and and do whatever it is you want to do, make whatever widget or invention you want to make, you still uh, incur those information costs to do the search and to, to come to that decision um, that you're not infringing any any relevant patents. Um, and even if you decide that, right, then there's still a risk that you'll be sued and you'll still have to defend yourself. And there's still a risk that you'll be wrong too. Um, so I think the the sort of uncertainty about boundaries uh, can be, is, is much higher in patent law than it is um, with land. And now that's not to say there's no uncertainty with land. Um, I I wouldn't say that at all, but I think the they're greater um, sort of in scope and then also for other reasons, different in kind. But I think they're greater in scope because we we have a problem with a lot of patents that have been granted in, in a few different fields. And and I think the courts and the PTO are trying to clean clean things up so that people understand what the scope of rights are in different fields um, and, and what the validity looks like. But I think that um, there's there's still work to be done there. I mean, there's I'm, I'm not going to sign on to all the 101 jurisprudence um, necessarily, but I think that that's the point of it, right? The idea is that we have a lot of uncertainty here about what can be patented, and we don't want that uncertainty to chill other people's actions. So if if patents really shouldn't be granted for certain things, um, or if the scope should be clearer and narrower. Um, then we'd like to clean that up. And I think that's that's one of the whole points of the America Invents Act and the post-grant review expansions that we've seen at the PTO is the idea that we should be we should be clearing up these boundaries and trying to make it so that there's less uncertainty for you know for both rights holders in terms of what it is they have 
and then for third parties in terms of what it is uh, they can do. Yeah, I, I think uh, that I would agree that Section 101, uh, you know, the question of what is patent-eligible subject matter in the first place, uh, really is a good illustration of the problems we face because the the number of times that prevailing understanding of, of patent-eligible subject matter doctrine has changed just in the last, say, 20 years, there have been you know, uh, a, a group of uh, now four Supreme Court decisions. The Federal Circuit has tried um, with varying success to try and reconcile those precedents and generate its own ideas about what the right answer should be. Um, but that uncertainty alone uh, sort of highlights that no matter how well we try to make future patents that the patent office issues uh, of higher quality, we're still going to be living in a world that's populated with, um, you know, the holdovers, the, the the patents that were issued in a a sort of tougher, more primitive time, and and they they reflect an understanding of Section 101 and, and for that matter of all the other requirements for patentability that are uh, that are just no longer you know appropriate or or valid. And so, what do we do with all the stuff that we still have to live with? It, it seems like that's really what um, what causes the information cost problems to to arise, and what what these uh, institutional reforms like post grant review are trying to solve. I, yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, I'm I mean, we can talk about how how successful those have been because I I know you teach it and I teach patent law, and I I don't think that the patentable subject matter um, area is the easiest doctrinally to to sort of get through, um, in class. Uh, but, uh, but at the same time, I think that's what, what this has been aimed at and, and what many, many things have been aimed at. I mean, I think eBay, um, eBay reflects those same concerns just, uh, just earlier. And I think some of the other, um, other reforms that have followed have, have been focused on the same, the same thing. You're right. The, the patents that are out there and we, they're, they just are sort of, one can make mischief with them. They shouldn't be enforceable, but they could still, especially en masse, um, be asserted in ways that make mischief. Yeah, so uh, remedies is, is, the question of remedies in eBay in particular, uh, I think is um, is tough to grapple with. Because in addition to patent law, I also teach remedies. And so eBay is the one case that I teach in both courses. And it ends up... Um, you know the 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 book I used, uh, uh, Modern American Remedies by by Douglas Laycock, Professor Laycock. Mm-hmm. Um, he just, I, I think he teaches about as you know hard against the case as it's possible to teach, uh, <laughs> while while not you know like just abandoning the case altogether. But the remedies scholars have taken issue with the eBay decision not because they think the patent policy was wrong or that. Uh, Justice Kennedy, you know, sort of missed the mark on his diagnosis of, of software patents and, and business method related patents. But because the way in which the court uh, really reshaped the the law of injunctions, particularly permanent injunctions, um, although they were trying to fix a patent law problem, may have overstepped the remedies jurisprudence. And it's, it's a little bit ironic because we often see... Um, you know, sort of property law concepts being imported into patent law to solve a problem. And then they sort of create unintended consequences um, that we have to deal with in another generation where different problems, particularly technological problems that we didn't foresee, might uh, might arise. So 
is is it your sense that uh, that unintended consequences more generally are something that the courts are trying to manage as they as they identify and apply these misfits? Yeah, I mean, I think I guess I don't know if there's sort of a long term plan with respect to patent law um, by the Supreme Court. Certainly, they're they're showing more interest, and I think uh, I think getting into the the sort of practical real world consequences of different decisions. And you can see this. Um, so I know you're talking about remedies, but in the, in one of the other areas that, that I discuss in this paper in exhaustion. Um, so in, uh, in discussing international exhaustion, whether goods that were sold abroad by the patent holder, um, or by a patent holder who holds a patent abroad as well, um, whether it's, it's an infringement to then import it into the United States without authorization. Um, and the, the court said, no, once it's, once it's subject to an authorized sale anywhere in the world, the U.S. patent rights are exhausted. Um, but in that case and in the earlier companion copyright case, Kurt saying that, uh, that ruled there was international exhaustion for copyright, uh, the court really looked at what would be the practical results of maintaining a sort of only national exhaustion rule and saying that you can stop imports of goods that people bought abroad legitimately with authorization from rights holders um, and said, you know, this would be terrible for international trade. Um, and it would be terrible for consumers in the United States who could walk around um, and, and who could go to buy the same book that looks exactly the same but one of them has restrictions on resale and the other one that was first sold in the United States doesn't, for example. Um, and so the court's really grappling with the, with the sort of practical implications of their rulings on commerce and on innovation um, and, and trying to see, yeah, if we, if we go along with this uh, property rights sort of strong protection rule, um, what is that doing for the way that third parties buy things and use them? What is it doing for the way, in the case of, of remedies, um, what does it do for the way that third parties innovate and bring things to market and, and do their due diligence if there's all these overlapping patents that can potentially hold them up? Um, and so, so I think you're right. They are sort of fixing some, some of these problems that stem from a misfit, uh, where, where property law, usually looks at um, conflicts between sort of the owner of the entitlement and another person or, or cognizable class of people that are interested in it, whereas patents have this sort of real public interest in them. If you don't grant the patent, then the public owns that information or has, has a right to use it as they wish to. Um, and so the patent law is really mediating uh, against a much broader set of interests than I think uh, traditional property often is. Yeah, and, and the, the case of exhaustion is particularly um, interesting, uh, as you lay it out in the paper, because in ordinary property law, sort of hornbook property law, uh, post-sale restraints on alienation are highly disfavored. And the state of patent law prior to the Kertzang decision, the Lexmark decision, was that international exhaustion uh, or excuse me, national exhaustion being the rule, uh, depending on how different uh, territorial jurisdictions were segmented, you could have a perfectly legitimate set of post-sale restrictions. You could just impose, impose them contractually. You could say um, uh, that, you know, by buying this product, you're not uh, allowed to 
to re-import uh, from another country. And if that failed, you still had this sort of backstop of actual patent uh, infringement law, which would let you accomplish the same thing. So ironically, you know, it seems like the court brought patent law back into line with, with the ordinary view of, of property's disfavor on, on restraints against alienation. Yeah, and, and so I do think that's fair. I mean, I, I think all of these cases, you can read them through a property law lens as well. Um, they all went against sort of the arguments put forward by, by those who were relying on property rights in order to make their argument. Um, and so in that sense, I think they, they deviate from the property law um, argument. But I think you're right. There are pieces of property law and there are limitations in property law and certainly in exhaustion. Uh, so, I mean, John Duffy has a paper and I, I talk about that in, in uh, the property law misfit where um, he talks about patent law's domain, right? And so once you've sold something, it's out of patent law's domain and you might have, you might have a contract claim against someone if you've put some sort of limitation on them when you're in privity. But then if they, you know, rightfully sell it to somebody else, you, you can't, you can't then have those restraints run with the good. Um, if you've, if you've actually sold the thing, you can't, you can't have limitations on it, post-sale limitations. And that is consistent with property law. So I think there's, there's ways you can read all these cases that are consistent with property law. Mm-hmm. But that's because property law is, you know, pretty big. It's, it's probably bigger than patent law, you know, as a field. Um, and so sure, but then, then that's sort of underdetermined, right? I mean, saying that, that patents are a form of property then doesn't actually tell you much more because what you want to know is, okay, and so what limitations are on them and when, when do we not have limitations and when will those apply? And, 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 and then also for, you know, scholars, we want to talk about when they should apply. And I don't think that just going back and saying, is there some kind of, you know, arcane form that might apply to this new modern type of field, um, I don't think that that's necessarily the most useful way to go about looking at patent law. I don't, I mean, I don't think it's useless, but I don't think it should be determinative if what we have before us, you know, from the constitution is this idea that we want to, um, we want to further innovation. We want to, um, further, further, um, sort of the spread of information and have disclosure of all that information and build on it and all of that. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what we get from property law if, uh, if that's what the exercise is. It, it neither determines what the outcome will be or what it should be. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that seems to me the, the main, uh, real contribution of your article to this literature is, you know, up until now, we've been talking in that literature about, uh, you know, what the questions are we should, we should ask and what's interesting and what's useful and what, which analogies are apt and so forth. But it seems like you're offering a real sort of rule of decision to know that, you know, here's when uh, property law can be useful. And here's another set of circumstances in which the courts are likely not to think that property is really the, uh, the end of the conversation. It may be the beginning, but, but it's not necessarily the end. And so the, the, the predictive you know, sort of promise of the courts, uh, figuring out how the courts will go and how they should go, uh, seems to be the, the, the real contribution here. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a, a practical person in, in some of these terms where I want to know, you know, okay, it's, uh, it's a right of exclusion and it's an in rem right and all of that, but 
but what does that mean and, and what should it mean? And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I hope that that is, that that is one of the contributions. Um, I think, and, and, you know, to that end, I, I think that, um, the courts are most likely to deviate and should be most likely to deviate when we have sort of these strong third party interests in their own possessions, um, in their own property rights. Um, and when we, when we have concerns about, uh, the clarity of the rights boundary, um, and the, the scope of the public domain, when we worry that that, that that might be, um, that there might be an opportunity to take things out of the public domain that really ought to be in it. Yeah. So with respect to third party rights and particularly, you know, when so many third parties are involved that it's essentially the public interest at large that we're talking about. Um, it, it seems to me that that was the, as you said, the most recent and perhaps the most uh, direct confrontation that the Supreme court had with, uh, with the property um, analogy for, for patent law, and that was the the administrative post grant review setting in the oil states case. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about that because that's that's an issue, of course, that's very inter- uh, dear to me, as you know. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so in in oil states, the question, of course, was whether um, you know the the patent office administrative adjudication system was constitutionally permitted to uh, deal with the validity and perhaps even. Uh, the the uh, extinction of patent rights if it turned out that they had been improperly granted. It used to be the province of the courts and the American Vents Act set up all of these new administrative uh, proceedings. So in that case, uh, how did the property law framing as advanced by the, the petitioner and, and Amiki, how did that, uh, that property law framing uh, urge one outcome, and and in what way did the court take the the alternative approach? So I think that uh, the the sort of property law framing um, idea was that look, these are if they're property rights, then they are um, then they're protected and they shouldn't be taken away without due process um, and hearing in an Article Three court. And so by routing them through an administrative agency. Um, even, even though the, the decision is appealable, um, to the, to the federal circuit and then the Supreme Court, of course. Um, but by routing them through an agency, you're depriving, uh, a rights holder of, of, um, that Article Three hearing on, on the ex- extinguishment of their, uh, of their property right. Um, and, and so the, the court, uh, decided, and, and I thought it was interesting, um, and I, I'm actually, so I think, I think it, it is one of the clearest cases, um, at the same time, I'm not sure that it's one of the cases that most fits my criterion for when the court should depart, but the, the court holds that the decision to grant a patent is a matter involving public rights, um, and say that the, so the grant of the patent is a public right. And then, um, the inner parties review is just reconsidering that grant. And so, um, so that's okay. It's okay to have the PTO do that. Um, what I thought was kind of interesting is that, uh, they, they sort of give this idea that patents might be different things in different contexts. So the, the court warns that the case, quote, should not be misconstrued as suggesting that patents are not property for purposes of the due process clause or the takings clause, um, end quote. And, and so, 
I think the the idea is like, hey, if you're if there's a government takings, then uh, then that has to go through an Article Three court. But here we're just reconsidering the grant of a public right, and so therefore, um, therefore, it's okay to to have an agency do it. It's it's a little bit of a strange holding in that way, I think. Um, and then the other thing that's a little bit strange about it is it doesn't directly um, it, it doesn't directly uh, engage with the situations where I say that third party interests are are strongest necessarily. We don't have some third party using their own property um, to do something allegedly infringing and, and being stopped from doing that the way that we do in eBay. We don't have somebody who's bought something legitimately the way that we do with exhaustion cases. Um, and now they're being stopped from doing what they want to do with the thing they bought from a patent holder. Um, so we don't have these strong third party interests sort of directly, uh, directly engaged the way that we do in the others. But, you know, as, as you and I talked about uh, earlier, that there's a huge number of patents that were granted under different standards. Um, and those are out there making mischief in various ways. Um, and so, or being made mischief with, I guess, um, in, in various ways. And so I think if you, if you put, uh, the America Invents Act into its context and what it's supposed to do, um, and what Congress, you know, wanted it to do, uh, I think, I think it makes practical sense to, to have it happen this way. I just think it's very interesting to, to sort of say, in some contexts, we'll treat patents as one type of property and in some contexts as another. And I think that that, the willingness to do that um, really sort of drove some of my thinking of this paper, like, huh, what, uh, what does that mean that in some contexts it's property and in some not? What does that mean for litigants um, and patent holders? And, and uh, what does that mean for, for us academics kind of trying to figure out what the limitations are on patents when they are and, and uh, what the content of it, where we, where we derive those from. Yeah. So that's, uh, so in, in closing, I guess the, the question of limiting principles uh, is an important, uh, I think, uh, bookend to your, your argument, because you do identify that property law itself contains a number of important limiting principles, some of which could be, as you've said, um, could be applied to patent law as well, and some of which uh, sometimes are and sometimes aren't. And so what we really need is a theory of when to use which of those limiting principles. Um, what do you think the limits of your, of your misfit argument uh, on its own terms uh, really are? What does, what does your approach uh, not get us? Uh, and so, you know, I guess in asking that, I'm asking how should somebody who reads your paper not uh, misuse your, your arguments? <laughs> Don't misuse the misfit. That's right. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I think, I mean, I think what I'd like the paper to do is sort of add to the, the set of critiques, um, of, of a property law framework. I don't, I don't think, um, I'm, I don't think I'm arguing against a property law framework ever or for anything, but I think it's sort of a starting point. Um, and I don't think that noticing the misfit necessarily gives all the answers either. I mean, you could, um, you could sort of make the argument over, over broad and say, well, there's always really strong third party interests. There's always notice problems. Um, and, and you always have, you know, the potential for independent invention 
and things like that. So why have patent rights at all? Why give them any strength? Why not rule sort of against, um, against injunctions all the time and, and, you know, invalidate everything as easily as you can and, and what, what have you. And I, I'm not arguing for that at all because I think, I mean, there's, there's a lot of value in patent law. It does what it does fairly well overall. Um, and so the interesting questions to look at is where it's not working perfectly and figure out, um, what, what should be tinkered with. And I think, for that, you know, the the sort of framework that we have is is fairly good, um, but but could be could be tinkered with. And I think the the cases where um, it's helpful to look to the property law framework um, probably have to do with sort of ownership of patent rights and licensing and and all. Of the, well, so that's not really property law framework, but you know, I mean, all of the all of the questions about having a patent and what you do with with that right. Um, fairly well governed by property law um, generally but uh, but if we're talking about uh, if we're talking about cases where there's reason to worry about the public domain um, reason to worry that that people are sort of taking more than they ought to or chilling the actions of third parties um, in ways that that will sort of chill innovation um, then I think we need to step away a little bit and and say okay what are our underlying purposes? Um, are these doctrines serving those purposes? And to the extent they're not, um, how, how ought they to be reconfigured to do so? Yeah. Okay. Well, Sarah, thank you very much for, for discussing your article. I thought it was uh, a really enjoyable and, and well-written piece of scholarship. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for having me on and, and discussing it with me. Yeah.